0: section three of the common reader this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the common reader by virginia Woolf, a not knowing greek for it is vain and foolish to talk of knowing greek since in our ignorance we should be at the bottom of any class of schoolboys since we do not know how the words sounded or where precisely we ought to laugh or how the actors acted and between this foreign people and ourselves there is not only difference of race and tongue but a tremendous breach of tradition all the more strange then is it that we should wish to know greek try to know greek feel forever drawn back to greek and be forever making up some notion of the meaning of greek though from what incongruous odds and ends with what slight resemblance to the real meaning of greek who shall say it is obvious in the first place that greek literature is the impersonal literature those few hundred years which separate john paston from plato norwich from athens make a chasm which the vast tide of european chatter Can never succeed in crossing when we read chaucer we're floated up to him insensibly on the current of our ancestors lives and later as records increase and memories lengthen there's scarcely a figure which has not its nimbus of association its life and letters its wife and family its house its character its happy or dismal catastrophe but the greeks remain in a fastness of their own fate has been kind there too she has preserved them from vulgarity euripides was eaten by dogs aeschylus killed by a stone sepho leapt from a cliff we know no more of them than that we have their poetry and that is all but that is not and perhaps never can be wholly true up any play by sophocles read quote, son of him who led our hosts at troy of old son of agamemnon and and at once the mind begins to fashion itself surroundings it makes some background even of the most provisional sort for sophocles it imagines some village in the remote part of the country near the sea Even nowadays such villages are to be found in the wilder parts of England, and as we enter them we can scarcely help feeling that here, in this cluster of cottages, cut off from rail or city, are all the elements of a perfect existence. Here is the rectory, here the manor house, the farm and the cottages, the church for worship, the club for meeting, the cricket field for play. Here life is simply sorted out into its main elements. Each man and woman has his work, each works for the health or happiness of others. And here in this little community, characters become parts of the common stock. The eccentricities of the clergyman are known, the great ladies' defects of temper, the blacksmith's feud with the milkman, the loves and matings of the boys and girls. Here life has cut the same grooves for centuries, customs have arisen, legends have attached themselves to hilltops and solitary trees, and the village has its history, its festivals and its rivalries. It is the climate that is impossible. If we try to think of Sophocles here, we must annihilate the smoke and the damp and the thick wet mists we must sharpen the lines of the hills, we must imagine a beauty of stone and earth rather than of woods and greenery. With warmth and sunshine and months of brilliant fine weather, life of course is instantly changed. It is transacted out of doors, with the result known to all who visit Italy that small incidents are debated in the street, not in the sitting room, and become dramatic make people voluble, inspire in them that sneering, laughing nimbleness of wit and tongue, peculiar to the southern races, which has nothing in common with the slow reserve, the low half-tones, the brooding introspective melancholy of people accustomed to live more than half the year indoors. This is the quality that first strikes us in Greek literature, the lightning-quick, sneering, out-of-doors manner. It is apparent in the most august as well as in the most trivial places. Queens and princesses in this very tragedy by Sophocles stand at the door bandying words like village women, with a tendency, as one might expect, to rejoice in language, to split phrases into slices, to be intent on verbal victory. The humor of the people was not good-natured like that of our postmen and cab-drivers. The taunts of men lounging at the street corners had something cruel in them as well as witty. There is a cruelty in Greek tragedy which is quite unlike our English brutality. Is not Pantheus, for example, that highly respectable man made ridiculous in the Bacchae before he is destroyed? in fact of course these queens and princesses were out of doors with the bees buzzing past them shadows crossing them and the wind taking their draperies they were speaking to an enormous audience rayed round them on one of those brilliant southern days when the sun is so hot and yet the air so exciting the poet therefore had to bethink him not of some theme which could be read for hours by people in privacy, but of something emphatic, familiar, brief, that would carry, instantly and directly, to an audience of seventeen thousand people, perhaps, with ears and eyes eager and attentive, with bodies whose muscles would grow stiff if they sat too long without diversion. Music and dancing he would need, and naturally choose one of those legends, like our Tristam and Isolde, which are known to everyone in outline, so that a great fund of emotion is ready prepared, but can be stressed in a new place by each new poet. Sophocles would take the old story of Electra, for instance, but would at once impose his stamp upon it. Of that, in spite of our weakness and distortion, what remains visible to us, that his genius was one of the extreme kind in the first place, that he chose a design which, if it failed, would show its failure in gashes and ruin, not in the gentle blurring of some insignificant detail, which, if it succeeded, would cut each stroke to the bone, would stamp each fingerprint in marble. His electrus stands before us, like a figure so tightly bound that she can only move an inch this way an inch that. But each movement must tell to the utmost, or, bound as she is, deny the relief of all hints, repetitions, suggestions, she will be nothing but a dummy, tightly bound. Her words in crisis are, as a matter of fact, bare. Mere cries of despair, joy, hate. Oigotalein! <inaudible> Olo lataiden himerae paeson heisthenes diplan. But these cries give angle and outline to the play. It is thus, with a thousand differences of degree, that in English literature Jane Austen shapes a novel. There comes a moment, I will dance with you, says Emma, which rises higher than the rest, which, though not eloquent in itself or violent, or made striking by beauty of language, has the whole weight of the book behind it. In Jane Austen, too, we have the same sense, though the ligatures are much less tight, that her figures are bound and restricted to a few definite movements. She too, in her modest, everyday prose, chose the dangerous art where one slip means death but it is not so easy to decide what it is that gives these cries of Electra in her anguish their power to cut and wound and excite. It is partly that we know her, that we have picked up from little turns and twists of the dialogue hints of her character, of her appearance, which characteristically she neglected, of something suffering in her, outraged and stimulated to its utmost stretch of capacity yet as she herself knows quote, "my behavior is unseemly and becomes me ill and" "blunted and debased by the horror of her position an unwed girl made to witness her mother's vileness and denounce it in loud almost vulgar clamour to the world at large" It is partly too that we know, in the same way, that Clytemnestra is no unmitigated villainess. De non toticte she says, there is a strange power in motherhood. It is no murderous, violent, and unredeemed whom Orestes kills within the house, and Electra bids him utterly destroy. Quote unquote, Strike again, no the men and women standing out in the sunlight before the audience on the hillside were alive enough, subtle enough, not mere figures or plaster casts of human beings. Yet it is not because we can analyze them into feelings that they impress us. In six pages of Proust, we can find more complicated and varied emotions than in the whole of the Electra. But in the Electra, or in the Antigone. We are impressed by something different, by something perhaps more impressive, by heroism itself, by fidelity itself. In spite of the labor and the difficulty, it is this that draws us back and back to the Greeks, the stable, the permanent. The original human being is to be found there. Violent emotions are needed to rouse him into action. But when thus stirred by death, by betrayal, by some other primitive calamity, Antigone and Ajax and Electra behave in the way in which we should behave thus struck down, the way in which everybody has always behaved, and thus we understand them more easily and more directly than we understand the characters in the Canterbury Tales. These are the originals, chaucers, the varieties of the human species. It is true, of course, that these types of the original man or woman, these heroic kings, these faithful daughters, these tragic queens who stalk through the ages, always planting their feet in the same places, twitching their robes with the same gestures, from habits, not from impulse, are among the greatest bores and the most demoralizing companions in the world. The plays of Addison, Voltaire, and a host of others are there to prove it. But encounter them in Greek. Even in Sophocles, whose reputation for restraint and mastery has filtered down to us from the scholars, they are decided, ruthless, direct. A fragment of their speech broken off would, we feel, color oceans and oceans of the respectable drama. Here we meet them before their emotions have been worn into uniformity. Here we listen to the nightingale whose song echoes through English literature, singing in her own Greek tongue. For the first time Orpheus with his lute makes men and beasts follow him, their voices ring out clear and sharp. We see the hairy, tawny bodies at play in the sunlight among the olive trees, not posed gracefully on granite plinths in the pale corridors of the British Museum. And then suddenly, in the midst of all this sharpness and compression, Electra, as if she swept her veil over her face and forbade us to think of her any more, speaks of that very nightingale, That bird, distraught with grief, The messenger of Zeus, Ah, Queen of Sorrow, Niobe, thee I deem divine, thee, who evermore weepest in thy rocky tomb. And as she silences her own complaint, she perplexes us again with the insoluble question of poetry and its nature, and why, as she speaks thus, her words put on the assurance of immortality. For They are Greek. We cannot tell how they sound it. They ignore the obvious sources of excitement. They owe nothing of their effects to any extravagance of expression. And certainly they throw no light upon the speaker's character or the writer's. But they remain something that has been stated and must eternally endure. Yet in a play, how dangerous this poetry! this lapse from the particular to the general must of necessity be with the actors standing there in person with their bodies and their faces passively waiting to be made use of for this reason the later plays of shakespeare where there is more of poetry than of action are better read than seen better understood by leaving out the actual body than by having the body with all its associations and movements visible to the eye The intolerable restrictions of the drama could be loosened, however, if a means could be found by which what was general and poetic, comment, not action, could be freed without interrupting the movement of the whole. It is this that the choruses supply: the old men or women who take no active part in the drama, the undifferentiated voices who sing like birds in the pauses of the wind, who can comment or sum up or allow the poet to speak himself or supply by contrast another side to his conception always in imaginative literature where characters speak for themselves and the author has no part the need of that voice is making itself felt for though shakespeare unless we consider that his fools and madmen supply the part dispensed with the chorus novelists are always devising some substitute thackeray speaking in his own person fielding coming out and addressing the world before his curtain rises so to grasp the meaning of the play the chorus is of the utmost importance one must be able to pass easily into those ecstasies those wild and apparently irrelevant utterances those sometimes obvious and commonplace statements to decide their relevance or irrelevance, and give them their relation to the play as a whole. We must quote unquote, be able to pass easily. But that of course is exactly what we cannot do. For the most part the choruses, with all their obscurities, must be spelled out and their symmetry mauled. But we can guess that Sophocles used them not to express something outside the action of the play. But to sing the praises of some virtue or the beauties of some place mentioned in it he selects what he wishes to emphasize and sings of white colonus and its nightingale or of love unconquered in fight lovely lofty and serene his choruses grow naturally out of his situations and change not the point of view but the mood in euripides however The situations are not contained within themselves. They give off an atmosphere of doubt, of suggestion, of questioning. But if we look to the choruses to make this plain, we are often baffled rather than instructed. At once in the Bacchae, we are in the world of psychology and doubt, the world where the mind twists facts and changes them and makes the familiar aspects of life appear new and questionable. What is Bacchus, and who are the gods, and what is man's duty to them, and what the rights of his subtle brain? To these questions the chorus makes no reply, or replies mockingly, or speaks darkly, as if the straightness of the dramatic form had tempted Euripides to violate it in order to relieve his mind of its weight time is so short and i have so much to say that unless you will allow me to place together two apparently unrelated statements and trust to you to pull them together you must be content with a mere skeleton of the play i might have given you such is the argument euripides therefore suffers less than sophocles and less than aeschylus from being read privately in a room and not seen on a hillside in the sunshine he can be acted in the mind. He can comment upon the questions of the moment. More than the others, he will vary in popularity from age to age. If, then, in Sophocles, the plays concentrated in the figures themselves, and in Euripides it is to be retrieved from flashes of poetry and questions far-flung and unanswered, Aeschylus makes these little dramas... The Agamemnon has 1,663 lines, Lear about 2,600. Tremendous by stretching every phrase to the utmost, by sending them floating forth in metaphors, by bidding them rise up and stalk eyeless and majestic through the scene. To understand him it is not so necessary to understand Greek as to understand poetry. IT IS NECESSARY TO TAKE THAT DANGEROUS LEAP THROUGH THE AIR WITHOUT THE SUPPORT OF WORDS WHICH Shakespeare ALSO ASKS OF US. FOR WORDS WHEN OPPOSED TO SUCH A BLAST OF MEANING MUST GIVE OUT, MUST BE BLOWN ASTRAY, AND ONLY BY COLLECTING IN COMPANIES CONVEY THE MEANING WHICH EACH ONE SEPARATELY IS TOO WEAK TO EXPRESS connecting them in a rapid flight of the mind, we know instantly and instinctively what they mean, but could not decant that meaning fresh into any other words. There is an ambiguity which is the mark of the highest poetry. We cannot know exactly what it means. Take this from Agamemnon, for instance. O maton den Ageniais errei pas Afrodita The meaning is just on the far side of language. It is the meaning which in moments of astonishing excitement and stress we perceive in our minds without words. It is the meaning that Dostoevsky, hampered as he was by prose and as we are by translation, leads us to by some astonishing run up the scale of emotions, and points at but cannot indicate the meaning that Shakespeare succeeds in snaring. Aeschylus thus will not give, as Sophocles gives, the very words that people might have spoken, only so arranged that they have in some mysterious way a general force, a symbolic power. Nor, like Euripides, will he combine incongruities and thus enlarge his little space, as a small room is enlarged by mirrors in odd corners by the bold and running use of metaphor, he will amplify and give us not the thing itself, but the reverberation and reflection which, taken into his mind, the thing has made, close enough to the original to illustrate it, remote enough to heighten, enlarge, and make splendid. For none of these dramatists had the license which belongs to the novelist, and in some degree to all writers of printed books, of modeling their meaning with an infinity of slight touches, which can only be properly applied by reading quietly, carefully, and sometimes two or three times over. Every sentence had to explode on striking the ear, however slowly and beautifully the words might then descend, and however enigmatic might their final purport be no splendor or richness of metaphor could have saved the agamemnon if either images or allusions of the subtlest or most decorative had got between us and the naked cry <laughs> <laughs> dramatic they had to be at whatever cost but winter fell on these villages, darkness and extreme cold descended on the hillside. There must have been some place indoors where men could retire, both in the depth of winter and in the summer heats, where they could sit and drink, where they could lie stretched at their ease, where they could talk. It is Plato, of course, who reveals the life indoors. And describes how when a party of friends met and had eaten not at all luxuriously and drunk a little wine some handsome boy ventured a question or quoted an opinion and socrates took it up fingered it turned it round looked at it this way and that swiftly stripped it of its inconsistencies and falsities and brought the whole company by degrees to gaze with him at the truth It is an exhausting process to contract painfully upon the exact meaning of words, to judge what each admission involves, to follow intently yet critically the dwindling and changing of opinion as it hardens and intensifies into truth. Are pleasure and good the same? Can virtue be taught? Is virtue knowledge? The tired or feeble mind may easily lapse as the remorseless questioning proceeds, but no one, however weak, can fail, even if he does not learn more, from Plato, to love knowledge better. For, as the argument mounts from step to step, Protagoras yielding, Socrates pushing on, what matters is not so much the end we reach as our manner of reaching it that all can feel, the indomitable honesty, the courage, the love of truth, which draw Socrates and us in his wake to the summit, where, if we too may stand for a moment, it is to enjoy the greatest felicity of which we are capable. Yet such an expression seems ill-fitted to describe the state of mind of a student to whom, after painful argument, the truth has been revealed. But truth is various. Truth comes to us in different disguises. It is not with the intellect alone that we perceive it. It is a winter's night. The tables are spread at Agathon's house. The girl is playing the flute. Socrates has washed himself and put on sandals. He has stopped in the hall. He refuses to move when they send for him now socrates has done he is bantering alcibiades alcibiades takes a fillet and binds it round quote unquote, this wonderful fellow's head he praises socrates quote, for he cares not for a mere beauty but despises more than any one can imagine all external possessions, whether it be beauty or wealth or glory or any other thing for which the multitude felicitates the possessor. He esteems these things and us who honor them as nothing, and lives among men, making all the objects of their admiration the playthings of his irony." But I know not any one of you has ever seen the divine images which are within, when he has been opened and is serious. I have seen them, and they are so supremely beautiful, so golden, divine, and wonderful, that everything which Socrates commands surely ought to be obeyed even like the voice of a god." Quote. All this flows over the arguments of Plato laughter and movement people getting up and going out the hour changing tempers being lost jokes cracked the dawn rising truth it seems is various truth is to be pursued with all our faculties are we to rule out the amusements the tendernesses the frivolities of friendship because we love truth Will truth be quicker found because we stop our ears to music and drink no wine, and sleep instead of talking through the long winter's night? It is not to the cloistered disciplinarian mortifying himself in solitude that we are to turn, but to the well-sunned nature, the man who practices the art of living to the best advantage, so that nothing is stunted. But some things are permanently more valuable than others. So in these dialogues we are made to seek truth with every part of us. For Plato, of course, had the dramatic genius. It is by means of that, by an art which conveys in a sentence or two the setting and the atmosphere, and then with perfect adroitness insinuates itself into the coils of the argument, without losing its liveliness and grace, and then contracts to bare statement, and then mounting, expands and soars in that higher air which is generally reached only by the more extreme measures of poetry. It is this art which plays upon us in so many ways at once, and brings us to an exaltation of mind which can only be reached when all the powers are called upon to contribute their energy to the whole but we must beware. Socrates did not care for quote unquote, mere beauty, by which he meant perhaps beauty as ornament. A people who judged as much as the Athenians did by ear, sitting out of doors at the play or listening to argument in the marketplace, were far less apt than we are to break off sentences and appreciate them apart from the context. For them, there were no beauties of Hardy, beauties of Meredith, sayings from George Eliot. The writer had to think more of the whole and less of the detail. Naturally, living in the open, it was not the lip or the eye that struck them, but the carriage of the body and the proportions of its parts. Thus, when we quote and extract, we do the Greeks more damage than we do the English there is a bareness and abruptness in their literature which grates upon a taste accustomed to the intricacy and finish of printed books we have to stretch our minds to grasp a whole, devoid of the prettiness of detail or the emphasis of eloquence accustomed to look directly and largely rather than minutely and aslant it was safe for them to step into the thick of emotions which blind and bewilder an age like our own in the vast catastrophe of the european war our emotions had to be broken up for us and put at an angle from us before we could allow ourselves to feel them in poetry or fiction the only poets who spoke to the purpose spoke in the sidelong satiric manner of wilfrid owen and Zikrit Sassoon. It was not possible for them to be direct without being clumsy, or to speak simply of emotion without being sentimental. But the Greeks could say, as if for the first time, yet being dead they have not died. They could say, if to die nobly is the chief part of excellence, to us out of all men fortune gave the slot. For hastening to set a crown of freedom on Greece will lie possessed of praise that grows not old." Quote. They could march straight up with their eyes open, and thus fearlessly approached, emotions stand still and suffer themselves to be looked at. But again the question comes back and back. Are we reading Greek as it was written when we say this? When we read these few words cut in a tombstone, a stanza in a chorus, the end or the opening of a dialogue of Plato's, a fragment of Sappho, when we bruise our minds upon some tremendous metaphor in the Agamemnon instead of stripping the branch of its flowers instantly as we do in reading Lear, are we not reading wrongly, losing our sharp sight in the haze of associations, reading into greek poetry not what they have but what we lack does not the whole of greece heap itself behind every line of its literature they admit us to a vision of the earth unravaged the sea unpolluted the maturity tried but unbroken of mankind every word is reinforced by a vigor which pours out of olive tree and temple and the bodies of the young. The nightingale has only to be named by Sophocles and She Sings. The grove has only to be called Abaton, Untrodden, and we imagine the twisted branches and the purple violets. Back and back we are drawn to steep ourselves in what perhaps is only an image of the reality, not the reality itself. A summer's day imagined in the heart of a northern winter. Chief among these sources of glamour, and perhaps misunderstanding, is the language. We can never hope to get the whole fling of a sentence in Greek as we do in English. We cannot hear it, now dissonant, now harmonious, tossing sound from line to line across a page. We cannot pick up infallibly, one by one, all those minute signals by which a phrase is made to hint, to turn, to live. Nevertheless, it is the language that has us most in bondage, the desire for that which perpetually lures us back. First, there is the compactness of the expression. Shelley takes 21 words in English to translate 13 words of Greek. Pas kun poetes gignetai can amusos he to prin, who an heros For every one, even if before he were ever so undisciplined, becomes a poet as soon as he is touched by love. Every ounce of fat has been pared off, leaving the flesh firm. Then, spare and bare as it is, no language can move more quickly, dancing, shaking, all alive, but controlled. Then there are the words themselves which in so many instances we have made expressive to us of our own emotions. Thalassa, Thanatos, Anthos, Aster, to take the first that come to hand, so clear, so hard, so intense, that to speak plainly, yet fittingly, without blurring the outline or clouding the depths, Greek is the only expression. It is useless, then, to read Greek in translations. Translators can but offer us a vague equivalent. Their language is necessarily full of echoes and associations. Professor McHale says when, and the age of Burne jones and Morris is at once evoked. Nor can the subtler stress the flight and the fall of the words be kept even by the most skilful of scholars. Thee who evermore weepest in thy rocky tomb is not ai da cruis. Further, in reckoning the doubts and difficulties, there is this important problem. Where are we to laugh in reading Greek? There is a passage in the Odyssey where laughter begins to steal upon us, but if Homer were looking, we should probably think it better to control our merriment to laugh instantly it is almost necessary though aristophanes may supply us with an exception to laugh in english humor after all is closely bound up with the sense of the body when we laugh at the humor of white we are laughing with the body of that burly rustic who was our common ancestor on the village green the french the italians the americans who derive physically from so different a stock pause as we pause in reading homer to make sure that they are laughing in the right place and the pause is fatal thus humor is the first of the gifts to perish in a foreign tongue and when we turn from greek to elizabethan literature it seems after a long silence as if our great age were ushered in by a burst of laughter these are all difficulties sources of misunderstanding of distorted and romantic of servile and snobbish passion yet even for the unlearned some certainties remain greek is the impersonal literature it is also the literature of masterpieces there are no schools no forerunners no heirs We cannot trace a gradual process working in many men imperfectly until it expresses itself adequately at last in one. Again, there is always about Greek literature that air of vigor which permeates an quote-unquote age, whether it is the age of Aeschylus or Racine or Shakespeare. One generation, at least in that fortunate time, is blown on to be writers to the extreme, To attain that unconsciousness which means that the consciousness is stimulated to the highest extent, to surpass the limits of small triumphs and tentative experiments. Thus we have Sappho with her constellations of adjectives, Plato daring extravagant flights of poetry in the midst of prose, Thucydides constricted and contracted, Sophocles gliding like a shoal of trout, smoothly and quietly, apparently motionless, and then with a flicker of fins off and away, while in the Odyssey we have what remains the triumph of narrative, the clearest and at the same time the most romantic story of the fortunes of men and women. The Odyssey is merely a story of adventure, the instinctive storytelling of a seafaring race. So we may begin it reading quickly in the spirit of children, wanting amusement to find out what happens next. But here is nothing immature. Here are full-grown people, crafty, subtle, and passionate. Nor is the world itself a small one, since the sea which separates island from island has to be crossed by little handmade boats and is measured by the flight of the seagulls. It is true that the islands are not thickly populated, and the people, though everything is made by hand, are not closely kept at work. They have had time to develop a very dignified, a very stately society, with an ancient tradition of manners behind it, which makes every relation at once orderly, natural, and full of reserve. Penelope crosses the room. Telemachus goes to bed. Nausicaea washes her linen, and their actions seem laden with beauty because they do not know that they are beautiful, have been born to their possessions, are no more self-conscious than children, and yet all those thousands of years ago, in their little islands, know all that is to be known. With the sound of the sea in their ears, vines, meadows, rivulets about them, They are even more aware than we are of a ruthless fate. There is a sadness at the back of life which they do not attempt to mitigate. Entirely aware of their own standing in the shadow, and yet alive to every tremor and gleam of existence, there they endure, and it is to the Greeks that we turn when we are sick of the vagueness, of the confusion, of the Christianity and its consolations, of our own age." End of section 3